0: How often are you beseeching God for days of refreshing and seasons of revival? Do we do it as churches? Do we do it individually? The church at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington under Charles Spurgeon was given to that kind of prayer, not just as a matter of course, but in distinct seasons, at particular times, seeking a blessing from the Lord. Spurgeon was persuaded, quote, That no genuine revival can ever arise from the flesh. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Human excitement at the utmost and carnal zeal at its extremity can do nothing toward the real conversion of souls. And so, on the 4th of February 1866, he preaches a sermon on Psalm 89 and verse 13 You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, and high is your right hand in which he intends to stir up and encourage the kind of believing prayer that he wants to see and which he believes God will answer in granting the kind of blessing that the church there needs. Now bear in mind that that's a church that is already knowing an unusual measure of blessing by most standards today, and yet they're asking for more. If that's the case, how much more ought we to be pleading? This then is our featured sermon for this week. We're looking at 668 to 674 in terms of our regular daily readings. And if you'd like to, you can follow along with us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon, or you can sign up to a weekly newsletter from mediagratii.org slash podcasts. And this week, our featured sermon, as I've mentioned, is this on the, uh, the, the mighty arm of of the Lord. Now what does Spurgeon have to say? We must have God's arm laid to the work or else nothing will be accomplished which will stand the solemn tests of the last great day. Wood, hay and stubble we may build alone, that's human work, but gold, silver and precious stones are from the king's treasury. In vain, then, your holy assemblies, your earnest desires, your passionate addresses, in vain, your efforts of a thousand shapes. Unless God Himself shall step forth from the hiding place of His power and set Himself a second time to His own glorious work, no good can come of all our toils. So Spurgeon is telling us up front, uh, front and centre, that we need God if we are to accomplish anything. And he wants us to recognize on the one hand that our great strength lies in the God of Jacob and on the other to take comfort from recognizing how great this strength is. If the answer to the question is the Lord's arm grown short with a doleful reply, yes, he is no longer mighty to save, then we might give up the work. But stupendous strength is with the Most High. It is the treasury from which we draw and it is inexhaustible. And so we may come to God with a cheering confidence that we cannot possibly ask what is not in His power to perform, so let's encourage ourselves with Spurgeon as we look at the divine power in itself, then in its manifestations, and then in some lessons to be derived from this power and its developments and This is a really helpful sequence in the uh, the sermon as a whole because uh, it's possible for us to talk doctrinally, to talk theoretically, to recognize intellectually that God has power and that that power has certain features. But Spurgeon doesn't just want us to come to an intellectual comprehension, he wants us to grasp the way in which this power is demonstrated, so these concrete practical uh, manifestations and from that a further practical step is to obtain our own encouragements from it. So then, the power of God in itself. And in saying that Spurgeon is not satisfied to rest with a merely doctrinal statement, we should not imagine that therefore he is not careful and complete In his doctrinal delineation of this divine power and so what you've really got under this first heading the power of God itself having as my drift the stirring up of believers minds to ask and expect a great display of it you've got this very orthodox and systematic expression of what it means for God to have power so then in the first place God's power is like himself self-existent and self-sustained. Power in the creature is like water in the cistern. In the creator, power is like water in the fountain. Beautiful way of expressing God as the source and origin of all true power. We are like the moon shining with reflected light. The creator is the sun whose light is underived, springing from himself within, and it's true naturally and spiritually. Beautiful use of illustration there to drive home the point. The mightiest of men then add not so much as a shadow of increased power to the Omnipotent One, the all-powerful God. His scepter is established by its own omnipotence. He sits on no buttressed throne, that is, he needs no support. He leans on no no assisting arm. And then God's power is comprehensive. We need to press on through these as Spurgeon does in the sermon, because if we spend too much time on any of them, uh, we won't be able to keep up with him. So you've got this self-existent and self-sustained power. Now this comprehensive power, which includes within itself all the power which resides in all the creatures in the universe. All power, he says, dwells perpetually and necessarily in the Lord Jehovah. The might which resides in any spiritual agency at this present moment whether it be in the book of God or in the ministry of truth or in prayer or in what else the church serves the Lord, all that power is still comprehended in the Most High. In other words then, God does not, as it were, take power out of himself and and abandon it or, or just send it out unconnected from him. Rather, God exercises his power and he grants that power in and through his creatures, whatever they may be. And then God's power is immutable. It is unchangeable. And not just in the sense that there is no shift in it, because you, you, you cannot make omnipotence any less than omnipotence, but also that God does not ever cease to be able to do what he has once done. What he did in old, he is able to repeat Now, his arm never did increase in strength because you cannot have more than almightiness, and it doesn't decrease because God is always all sufficient. Ages may change, but God does not. So we don't imagine that he's a a God of the hills and not a God of the valleys, that he's the God of the past and not the God of the present or the future, that he's the God of a Luther or a Calvin or a Whitfield or a Spurgeon, but not the God of his people today. There is no change in the power of the everlasting Father, and then again, God's power in its fullness is perfectly irresistible. Plead with the Most High till you can cry with Luther, Viki: We have overcome Him. We have conquered in prayer, and you have conquered altogether. Only obtain God's help, God's strength on your behalf, and all must advance. If God's power is irresistible, then you may lay hold upon it and so prevail. Then also remember that this power is entirely independent. That is, it doesn't need anything extraneous, anything beyond or outside of itself to enable it to work. It doesn't rely on anyone, anything, any place, any situation. It didn't lie in the upper room at Jerusalem. It didn't lie in Jerusalem of old. It doesn't lie in a particular man or in a particular uh, gift. Oh God Almighty, he says, you can bless even us and among the thousands of ministers who up to this point may have ploughed us upon a rock and laboured in vain. There is no one whom God may not take and make him as a two-edged sword in his hand to smite through the hearts of his foes. You see, that's what we need to grasp. That's what we need to look at. We look at circumstance, we look at instrument, we look at situation, we look at personality and we say either, well God might be able to use him or the Lord will not be able to use him. And Spurgeon's reminding us, God is independent, that is he can do what he wishes, as he wishes, when he wishes, by whom or what he wishes. Unbelief has many mournful reasons, but faith sees none as to why God should not accomplish great things by weak and foolish men. And then, gathering up the whole, this power is infinite. Power in the creature must have a limit, but in the Creator neither measure nor bound. If you believe then in the littleness of God, says Spurgeon, you will ask but a little, and you will have but a little though if you enlarge your desires, if you let your souls be stretched till they become wide as seven heavens, even then you shall not hold the whole of the great God, but you shall be fitted to receive more largely out of the divine fullness. And he says, Remember too that this divine power is all our own, for we are told that this God is our God forever and ever. The Lord is my portion, this God says my soul, Therefore, I will hope in Him. And so, Christian, the potency which dwells in Jehovah belongs to you. It is yours to rest upon in holy trust, yours to stir up in earnest pleading. So you've got this really sweet sweep over something of what it means for God to have power, to God to p- possess and exercise this almightiness. But now he wants to move on and remember we're stepping forward in in practical and experimental or experiential stages here. Remember that God displays or exercises this power. You can see this power at work. It is not merely a theoretical might, it is a might enacted. And these manifestations are varied in character and innumerable in multitude. And Spurgeon says, I'm going to start with what I've got in the psalm and then look at other things. And he says it's not quite the natural order of things, but he wants to hold this to the text. And so I will remind you of God's tremendous power in destruction. And that's there in the psalm itself. You've broken Rahab in pieces as one that is slain. You've scattered your enemies with your strong hand. So says Spurgeon remember how God has worked to overthrow sin. He turns to examples that are typical not just typical from scripture but typical in terms of the illustrations that he himself uses and so he goes to the flood of Noah when the Lord poured out his judgments upon a world that had turned its back upon him. He looks at Sodom where the Lord God made his anger to smoke against the unrighteous. He looks at Egypt and how the Lord struck them in order that he might bring out his people. He speaks of Amalek, scattered as chaff before the wind. And then there's the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Philistines and the Edomites and there's Moab. So he walks back through scriptural history, not least then advancing through scripture to Greece and to Rome and the casting down of those idolatrous nations. Who is a God in might to be compared to him? And he says, almost as an aside, what a marvel it is then that God has not struck us, that he's not smitten us. And here's a a thrust then at the unconverted man. You cannot face it out with God. You cannot escape him. You cannot set yourself in battle array against the Almighty. The thorns might sooner set themselves in battle against the fire. Do not you attempt to stand against him, but rather then flee to christ for refuge understand the judgments of the almighty and look to almighty redemption in order to deliver you and it's a strong argument then for the people of god to stir us up to pray the fearful nature of the sinner's doom should arouse us to earnestness vehement and abiding and then he, he goes on another part of the the psalm the manifestation of god's power in creation. The heavens are his and the earth is his. He is his. What he means is that God has shown his strength in calling all things into being and again he uses scriptural illustration. He goes back to the uh, the, the language of Genesis and of Job uh, and he says this is what God has done and you should draw living water out of this well also if you're a Christian the God who in the old creation did all this, can he not work today? You see how he's pressing us forward. The Lord has only to will with his own omnipotent will and the sinner becomes a saint and the most rebellious casts down his weapons. So let creation encourage you to expect a new creation. If you've got no sense of the the power and the wisdom of God in making all things out of nothing, then you've short-circuited your own expectations of God working in the new creation today. The old creation had no blood upon it to plead with God to work, but our plea is the blood of Jesus Christ with regard to a new creation. And then he says, not just destruction, not just creation, but also sustentation Or sustaining, that is God holding things up. He has made it and He is keeping it. He holds up the world which He has made. He preserves the church which He has called. And this is where you see again the might of God. And it gives you another reason to pray. Why should God not bless and succour His well beloved church now? Why should He not make her in these peaceful days? And we might say these are not peaceful days what does it matter to the Lord? He can still make us to be a palace beautiful for himself to dwell in. There's nothing in our circumstances, nothing in our environment, nothing in our challenges that should lead us to conclude that God cannot do today what he has done in the past. And then the fourth element, not just destruction, not just creation, not just sustentation, but now works of redemption. And again, scriptural illustration the great redeeming work at the Red Sea and the song of Moses then joined with the song of the Lamb and he says if this is what God has done if this is what he did then if Hercules in the fable cleansed the Augean stable then then what can God do with true power in the filth and the muck and the mire and the mess of this world a little classical Uh, allusion there it's uh, one of the the famed labors of Hercules there were these stables owned by a particular king and uh, Hercules was set to clean them out and he diverted a river if I remember correctly that flushed them through and says Spurgeon Christ will flush through this world purging it by his death by his blood he is going to accomplish something that is not fable or fiction or folly it is real it is true it is glorious and again as so often he he cries out oh lord jesus bursting into into prayer into intercession into praise as he preaches when we see that you have burst the gates of death that you've trodden on the neck of sin that you've broken the head of satan that you've led captivity captive and opened the gates of heaven to all your people then we may indeed sing you have a mighty arm and this is where Spurgeon kind of takes off a little bit now because uh, he's he says we're dealing with the application of this redemption by the spirit of God so this is where we really want you to pray in the darkest day when everyone said the cause of religion was growing hopeless then the great lover of the church has appeared here are some of the lessons that he wants to take from the whole this is the great application that he wants to make and this is where we really now need to be engaged and uh, understanding and responsive to what he's saying because so often this is where we we ourselves are going to fall short we can get the intellectual sense of it we can sign up to the doctrine we can even marvel at what God has done in the past but says Spurgeon we need to be praying ourselves churches have grown lukewarm, ministers dull, doctrines unsound, the hearts of the people have failed, the faithful have almost died out but God has always been able to raise up a man or men and the face of the church is changed from languor to energy, from from laziness and lethargy to dynamism. This is the work of God and what stops him doing it again? Why should God not do greater things than we've seen in the past? What hinders but our unbelief? Oh God, you have a mighty arm. Now where has God proved this power? It's in the persons whom he has saved. Saul of Tarsus, again you see how Spurgeon is drawing his illustrations from history, from scripture, even from from myth and fable. But here you've got Saul of Tarsus. It's the great scriptural example of a man who you thought was utterly lost, whom God delivered. There's no heart so hard, says the preacher, but what God's hammer can dash it in pieces. So let us never despair while we can say of our God, you have a mighty arm. And then it's seen in the power. The power of God is seen in the number of people converted. Three thousand in a day under Peter's sermon. Why not again? Why not 30,000? Why not 300? And unbelief says, oh yeah, but that's not going to happen. That doesn't happen. And why not? If God is God, he can do these things in a moment. And then the instruments which God has employed demonstrate his power. The base things and the despised. So that men will say, not what a great man that is, but what a great God he has. And so says Spurgeon, I wish I had time to encourage your hearts to expect great things of God and you're thinking you haven't done that and I hope you feel that he has and so he says have a large expectation have a large realization and I think if you like he's channeling a bit of William Carey here expect great things and attempt great things and therefore pray great things And so he thinks of a friend who says, I've been praying very long to this mighty God for the conversion of someone who lies near my heart and I cannot get an answer. Well, says Spurgeon, it may be that God has not yet put forth his power. He hasn't, or your friend would have been healed. Your friend would have been saved. If you yourself then now feel your own utter powerlessness, now will be the time for God to work. The reason of delay may now have gone. Certainly the fact that God has not answered you is no reason why he should not ultimately give you your desire. If he's delayed a little time, remember he never is too late and certainly never forgets in the end. He may delay but cannot deny. This is the kind of faith that we need. Not because faith earns a blessing, not because faith pays for a blessing, not because faith simply demands a blessing as if it's entitled to it, but because faith lays hold upon God. And if the times seem to be coming worse and the heart seems to be coming worse, then says Spurgeon, do not despair, because this is where God delights to show His grace and His strength. And if the churches of our lands are, are bedevilled with popery and with with paganism and with Uh, perversions of all kinds why should God not now come forth with strength and in glory let men throw down the gauntlet and God will take it up and why should we expect this why anticipate a visitation of grace must be says Spurgeon for God's glory to save souls there cannot be two opinions about that and will God not therefore do it And secondly, it must be due to Christ that souls should be saved. He has not yet seen all of the travail of his soul, therefore he cannot yet be satisfied. He is going to have his seed. He is going to have his children. And these then are the things that we need to believe. This then is the way we need to pray. Spurgeon, at time of writing, at time of preaching, rather this sermon, was 12 years in the ministry there in London. He's, he's growing a little older, but he's grown stronger in his faith. He came up with trembling and the church was few and feeble. Little life lingering among them, but it was there and soon the blessing came. So pray again, he says. Pray more. Pray further. Pray always. Where else has God worked as he worked there? And we cannot say that we have seen it, perhaps, but we know that it has taken place and we need to build upon what God has said and what God has done. So start not back, you men of prayer. Fail not now, since God is still your arm. You carry bows. Do not turn back in the day of battle. You have the trophies of past victories before your eyes. Now for a mighty attack upon the mercy seat that you may win power to overcome the gates of hell. Let us be vehement, violent I was about to say, for the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Let us cannonade the gate of heaven. Let us uprise each man and each woman, every soul that has power, and let us cry unto the mighty God that he would be pleased to give us such a blessing that we shall not have room enough to receive it. It must be come, only be ready for it. It will come, it comes even now. Thank God, take courage, be on your watchtower and the Lord bless us for his name's sake. Amen. How would you respond if you'd sat under such ministry? I'd urge you, don't just listen to this feeble little summary, listen to the the whole thing, read the sermon through, read it with with a prayerful expectation that it would do you good, and may it move us to become men and women of prayer. I don't know what your church situation is, I don't know what your family situation is, I don't know what your neighbours are like, I don't know what you're, you're, you're facing in your circumstances, but this I do know, that the God of Spurgeon is our God still the god of abraham and isaac and jacob was his god and our god. so let's be let's be pleading with the lord and if this podcast does anything in that direction then we can be glad. Well, i trust it's been a blessing to you and i hope that you'll continue listening to from the heart of spurgeon a podcast from media gratiae. we'd love other people to join with us to learn about these things. so Please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast app. Uh, Give us a rating, drop just a few lines, a few words. Uh, Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll be back next week. Next week is our 100th podcast. Uh, No idea we were getting that soon, uh, that that close to that number so soon, uh, but we realised it was coming up, and it's going to be Sermon 677, Faith Versus Sight. 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 uh, for the sermon itself next week 675 to 681 if you want to read along daily but do join us on that occasion and we trust that it will prove a blessing again to your soul and to the souls of others for the praise and glory of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks again and take care. God bless.